Psalm 98. Um, let's just start in verse 1. Psalm 98. O sing unto the Lord a new song, for He hath done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm hath gotten Him the victory. The Lord hath made known His salvation. His righteousness hath He openly showed in the sight of the heathen. He hath remembered His mercy and His truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with the harp, with the harp and with the voice of a psalm, with trumpets and sound of cornet. Make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Let the floods clap their hands and the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For He cometh to judge the earth with righteousness. Shall He judge the world and the people with equity? And so we've been saying since we've been in Psalm 93, we've, we've, uh, uh, we are in a, in a stream of Psalms here that really, um, have a very similar chord, and that is praise the Lord, sing unto the Lord, sing unto the Lord a new song. Now, we're not going to try to replicate what we've said in these other psalms because Psalm 98 has its own niche, and I think you'll you'll enjoy this tonight. Um, but it's 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 in a group that reminds us that as we come before God in prayer, as we think about uh what it is that uh, ought to be happening in our personal and even corporate, but particularly our personal walks with the Lord and our interactions with God, there is a place for supplication. We've talked about that tonight as we come to God and we bring our requests to God and, and God answers those in His way and in His timing. And, and there are uh, there is a place for us to come to Him in the uh, in the darkest moments of our life and to pour our hearts out honestly and openly. Uh, but there are also, and there is also a place to where we put our supplications aside and we come to God and we praise Him for who He is. And we praise Him for what He's done. And then Psalm 98, we praise Him in anticipation for the completion of what He started. Uh, psalm 98 is a, is a psalm that is um, really set out on praising God in joyful anticipation. So you can't really get through Psalm 98 and understand it to be anything that is... Um, happening here in the present. Now, when I say here in the present, I really mean from, from whoever penned this psalm, they weren't thinking present tense when they wrote it. And while we're on this side of the cross, and you know, the, the other side of the cross from when this was penned, we can't even take Psalm 98 and fully embrace it as being completely fulfilled. I mean, it's talking about things that that we haven't even seen yet, things that we're still anticipating. Um, the Lord making known His salvation and His righteous uh, His righteousness openly in the sight of the heathen and, and, and the, the righteous judge who's coming to judge in equity and um, so forth and so on. And so we're, we're looking tonight at a 
at a joyful anticipation of what God will do, what he certainly will do based on what he's already done. Um, Just an interesting fact about Psalm 98. Maybe you know this already. But um, Psalm 98 is the is the basis. It's what um, the hymn writer Isaac Watts based his hymn Joy to the World off of. And um, he originally wrote it as a poem, and it was to address the lack of joy that seemed to be in many worship services. And as you read the history of that, Isaac Watts did not have the incarnation in mind whenever he wrote Joy to the World. He, he had Psalm 98 and the second coming of Christ in mind as far as those realities that are being expressed um, in that hymn. And, and so this is a psalm that doesn't just dispense information to us, but this is a psalm that calls us to, we've said this several times since we've been in the psalms, calls us to participate in singing a new song to the Lord, praising God for what He's done and looking forward and praising God for what He will do because our hope and our anticipation on what God will do is just as sure and just as steadfast as our praise for what He's already done. We can bank on the fact that what we anticipate, what God has said He will do, we can bank on the fact that he will do it. And so since that's the case, we can anticipate it with joy. Now there's, there's three different, uh, divisions in this psalm. Um, and, and so we'll take the joyful anticipation in three different ways or three different movements here. Number one, if we look at the first three verses, uh, it's the joyful anticipation of the fullness of salvation. Okay, the joyful anticipation of the fullness of salvation. Sing unto the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. Now we're thinking here past tense. He has, it has gotten him the victory. Now we, we know that in God's Economy, he is outside of time. And so when we think about things uh, on a timeline, uh, we're just functioning at a, at a human level. God doesn't think that way. But as the psalmist here is expressing what it is that God has done, he's expressing this as if it's already been secured, it's already been realized, it's already been seen. And so it's not a theoretical um it's not a, a, a theoretical um, thought, it's a reality. His right arm has already gotten him the victory. It's already been accomplished. Now look where he goes with this. Verse 2, the Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly showed in the sight of the heathen. He hath remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. He remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. So we're we're thinking here again about this joyful anticipation of the fullness of salvation. A day when the victory that the Lord has one for his people will be fully realized and and fully entered into. 
It's a victory that one day will be put on full display and the heathen will see the salvation of the Lord, the righteousness of the Lord. Uh, But it's an anticipation that we have not really fully entered into just yet. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Paul makes reference to this. Ephesians chapter 1. He's just going through um, what it is that we've received by being in Christ. He says in verse 13, in whom ye also trusted, that is Christ, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. Now, the, just to zero in on what I'm after here, he says that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the word seal there, really we could say it uh, in, in the way we think in a modern way, you've been stamped by the Spirit. You've been marked by the Spirit. The kind of seal he's referring to is the seal that maybe a, the king would put his signet seal on a letter or on something like that, but it's his mark. It says, this is this is my possession. This belongs to me. So the Holy Spirit has been given to you as a seal, as a way that you've been marked out. But the Holy Spirit has also been given to you, verse 14, as an earnest of your inheritance. Okay, That means as a pledge or as a down payment of the inheritance that you've received in Christ. So what that means is, as glorious as it is to experience regeneration, That's just a down payment. As marvelous as it is to be able to experience the kind of comfort that you can receive in the midst of difficulties like we've been talking about during our prayer time when um, uh, tragedies hit or or difficult circumstances fall and and, uh, 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 the Lord just wraps His arms around you and He answers the multitude of prayers that are going up on your behalf and His presence is so real. That's just a down payment. Okay, that's just a foretaste. Uh, there's a, there's an entire inheritance waiting on you. And this is just a little bit of it that we have in this life. And so, first Peter, um, chapter one talks about that. First Peter chapter one tells us in first Peter one, verse three, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope or a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, so we've been begotten or born again unto a living hope by Jesus Christ from the resurrection from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, that's reserved in heaven for you. So brothers and sisters, the reality is, is while we rejoice in the salvation that we've received and the blessings that we've received now from the Lord, the bulk of your inheritance is in heaven reserved for you. You haven't even begun. 
Okay, You've just barely started to get a taste of what it is that God has secured, the victory that God has secured for you in Christ. Now, we can think through, what is this joyful anticipation? What is it that we ought to be... Um, what is it that we ought to be anticipating or hoping in or waiting for that causes joy for us now? How does this work? Well, you know, we even mentioned some of this stuff on Sunday. The idea that our light affliction now is not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. Um, um, other passages, and we'll go to some here in a minute that talk about the same sort of thing. Well, brothers and sisters, this is not just some kind of a this is not just some kind of a factual thing to um, to where we have this information that uh, we store away somewhere. He's talking about this whole earnest expectation, this down payment. You've uh, heard brother Zach preach much, you've heard him say this is like an engagement ring. Okay? The Holy Spirit is God's engagement ring. Well, when, it, when two people get engaged, at, at least in the West, and it's not arranged, you know, and, and they want to be engaged, this is an exciting time. There's some anticipation that's going on. They're looking forward to um, the day when that marriage will be fully consummated and they're able to enter into the full joy of that covenant. And it's the same sort of thing that the psalmist is thinking about here. And so... As we anticipate, again, as good as the as as good and as as wonderful as the blessings are that we receive now, First John chapter three, verse two. We're just going to kind of look through some of these blessings that we can anticipate, or that we should be anticipating. First John chapter three says, uh, verse two says, "Beloved." Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You know, one of these days, your growth in Christ's likeness is going to be complete, and you're going to stand face to face with God, enjoying him forever. You know, whenever we read, and I think not too long ago, we were talking about this reality that God is holy. And because He's holy, when we read in Scripture about the Lord meeting face to face with men, the response is the same. Right? Isaiah fell down and said that he was undone. Ezekiel hit the floor as if he were dead. John sees him and, and he hits the ground. One of these days you're going to stand face to face with God and you're not going to be horrified. You're going to be glorified. And you're going to enjoy His presence face to face. Isn't that something? And, and when it happens, you'll be in a, in a place, your salvation will have been brought to a place to where there is no longer any need for growth in you from the standpoint of your growth in holiness will come to an end. It will be complete. Can you imagine that? Where, where there are no, uh, there are no 
self-doubts. There are no disappointments. There, there are no, there is no shame. Nothing like that. Well, the psalmist thinks about the completion of salvation and the anticipation of that. And rather than hanging his head and saying, I just wish it were that way now, he anticipates what it will be. And he begins to praise God now for what he one day will receive. Revelation 21 gives us some insight into this. Revelation 21 on the things that uh, the Lord has secured for us in his victory. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. This is a familiar passage for most of us. It says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. I would also add Revelation 22 verse 3, There shall be no more curse. There'll be no more curse. So think about this. As we anticipate receiving the fullness of our inheritance, part of that is the fact that God will dwell, He will tabernacle, He will dwell with His people in an unhindered, permanent, intimate relationship that will have no hindrances. There will be no tears, no death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain. Sin will be a distant memory. It won't exist. The curse will be gone as far as your your, uh, wrestling with it goes. All things will be made new. Now, some of this we can we can understand. Some of it we have to use our imagination. What does it mean for all things to be made new? We've gotten so used to the fallenness of this world that we don't even know what to anticipate as far as the fullness of Jesus Christ making all things new. But we know this, whatever that means, it's going to elicit joy in the heart of every single child of God who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Or think about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're thinking about all things being made new. 
you're going to have a resurrected body. You're going to get a new body. We're going to be in a new heavens and a new earth. And when we think about the resurrection, starting in verse 42, Paul says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption and it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. We're talking about your body here. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. He, he gives these, these contrast here about the resurrection and what we can expect. This body that is so prone to corruption will one day be raised in incorruption. There will, it, it, there will, it will no longer be susceptible to any corruption at all. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. Sown in weakness, but raised in power. Again, we, we, these are words and we have a little bit of an idea about what's being said, but we have to go back to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 and say, you know, we are now the sons of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. We don't have the words to fully describe what all of this means. But we do know this. We do know that it's describing the reality that one day the salvation that you've received by God through Christ will come to completion. You've been given a foretaste and that foretaste of the inheritance that's being reserved in heaven for you will one day be fully given to you or maybe we should say one day you will fully enter into. And so as, as Paul's thinking about these things, in 1 Corinthians 15, we get a little glimpse of Psalm 98 as we read uh, Paul's um, uh, ending to this chapter, at least leading up to the ending before he applies it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Joyful anticipation of what will happen. Joyful anticipation of the fullness of salvation being received by us through Christ. And so in Psalm 98, again, he's anticipating a time, anticipating the day when the victory that the Lord has gotten by his right and holy arm is fully received, when his salvation is made known, his righteousness openly made known to the heathen and to the ends of the earth. The joyful anticipation of the fullness of salvation. Secondly, verses 4 through 6, this joyful anticipation of the, the full rule and reign of King Jesus. Verses 4 through 6. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm, 
with trumpets and sound the cornet for a joyful noise before the Lord, the King. Now, we know, we've talked about this before, we know that when Christ, um, that in a sense, Christ is ruling and reigning right now. Um, we live in a what some people have called a already and not yet type reality. So in, in, in a sense, Christ is already reigning. He is overruling the... Um, the plans and the purposes of the wicked and through his divine providence, he is working those things for his good, um, for our good and for his glory. And but but that's not always manifest or put on display to all the ends of the earth, to the whole world, to the heathen. One of these days, Christ is going to come back and the fullness of what's being expressed here is going to be realized when Jesus comes back to rule with a rod of iron so that he is no longer overriding the purposes and plans of the wicked, but the wicked are willfully submitting themselves to him as king of king and lord of lord before they are judged. Okay, So this is a joyful anticipation of that that Jesus Christ one day will manifestly reign over the entire earth, over all of his creation. Look in Philippians chapter 2. Paul anticipates that here. When it talks about Christ's humility, the fact that he made himself a servant and that he um, died the death of the cross Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 says, Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That Jesus Christ is Lord, that is Master, King, Ruler over all. This is the anticipation of a day whenever Jesus Christ will be openly submitted to, that it will be openly confessed on every tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a joyful anticipation of that. Revelation 19 talks about that, gives us a a, a little window of that. Revelation 19 Starting in verse 11, Revelation 19, 11 says, And I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. Okay, we're thinking about a king and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, And he shall tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. 
And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. John gets this vision of Jesus Christ coming back in his second coming, in the return of Christ. And he's coming back as a king who is taking vengeance on his enemies. He's coming back as a king who is ruling and reigning and conquering. He's coming back as a king who's ruling and reigning in righteousness and in truth, not only for his glory, but also for the good of his people. So that as he comes back, we can anticipate that for all those who are outside of Christ, it'll be the most horrific scene they've ever seen. I mean, they will tremble. They will, they will quake. They will beg the mountains to fall on them and to cover them up. But for those who are in Christ, it'll be the beginning of the most beautiful thing we've ever seen that we've ever experienced. It will be, think about it this way. It will be, we've, we've talked about this in John. It, it will be the satisfaction of every longing that you've ever had. Can you imagine that? He will reign and you will rejoice in his reign. There will be no disappointments. Everything that we said earlier about you receiving the fullness of your salvation goes right along with the visible rule and reign of Jesus Christ over all of his, over all of his enemies. And so the psalmist in Psalm 98 goes out of his way to celebrate this reality. Again, verse 4, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with the harp and with the, uh, with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm, with trumpets and sound of cornet. Make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King. Brothers and sisters, when we come to the house of God and we think about these things and we think about what worship means, there is, we've talked about this before, there is a sense in which worship, our worship should, um, uh, should be, uh, done in reverence and, 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 and in solemnity and those kinds of things. But there's a, there's also a sense in which our worship should be joyful. When we come to worship God, especially whenever we're thinking about the anticipation of what we will receive as Jesus Christ comes as king, this is a celebration. And again, I mentioned earlier about Isaac Watts and the reason that he wrote the Joy to the World song was because he was bothered by just the lack of joy that was visible in many of the worship services that he attended. Our worship services should not always look like funerals. Okay, we've received the, the down payment of the Holy Spirit. We've been given life from spiritual death. We've been given great and precious promises. And part of what grace is teaching us, according to Titus chapter 2, is that it's teaching us to anticipate the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ and the culmination of the salvation that we've received in Him. And so 
as we anticipate the reign of King Jesus, we do that joyfully. We do that joyfully. And then lastly, as far as the psalm goes, verses 7 through 9, it says, Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for He cometh to judge the earth. With righteousness shall he judge the world and the people with equity. Now it starts out in verse 7 in a, in a real poetic imagery here. It's calling on nature to praise God because of his future judgments, the anticipation of his future judgments. And maybe you, uh, as you read verses 7 and 8, maybe your mind goes to Romans chapter 8. 19 through 22, when it talks about the fact that even the creation is groaning and is experiencing labor pains, is the word, that the travail in anticipation of the completion of the redemption that's been wrought in Christ. Even the creation is groaning. I, honestly, I don't know what that means. Um, but it does mean that, that when all things are made new, you know, Jesus told the Pharisees, um, if these people weren't praising me, then the rocks would shout out. One of these days, um, when we think about the celebration of all things being restored and redeemed, including creation, um, it's going to be a scene that I don't think we're going to be able to wrap our minds around here. So the hills and the sea and the, the floods... Rejoice. Well, rejoice because of what? Uh, for, this is verse 9, rejoice before the Lord. For, that is because, He comes to judge the earth. He comes to judge the earth. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 is appointed to the man uh, once to die and then the judgment. All right, we're thinking about the final judgment here. Matthew 25, when Christ comes and, and He gathers together the earth and He divides the sheep and the goat. He's saying rejoice because there is coming a final judgment. The King of Kings, when, sal when His um, work of salvation comes to completion, and you receive the fullness of what He has secured in His victory, part of what that means in His rule and reign and righteousness is that He will judge the world. And notice the words that are used here. With righteousness and with equity. With righteousness and with equity. Now, when God comes to judge the world in righteousness and equity, we know from John chapter 5, 26 to 27, that, uh, that that job has been given to Jesus Christ. Okay. Christ is the one who will judge the world. Second uh, Timothy 4, 1 says that Christ will judge the living and the dead. Okay. And here's what we know. Here's what we know that His judgment, He will judge according to righteousness 
and he will judge in equity. Now, here's what we mean when we say that. Think about this in terms of um, the way you think about um, an election or a candidate in an election, right? a good candidate. Because this is what he's talking about. Someone who's ruling, someone who's reigning, someone who is um, in charge. And, and Jesus is going to make judgments and all of his judgments will be done and executed perfectly. He doesn't have an alternate agenda. He's, he's, not, um, he's not trying to buy his time until he can slip in something that you can't see. But he judges according to righteousness and righteousness alone. Now look in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. When it says this about God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. But as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or all manner of life, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now, what I'm looking at is verse 17 and this reality of being holy. The judgment that God will execute is a judgment that is done without any respect of persons. What that means is uh, either you're going to be in Christ or outside of Christ, but as far as God's execution of judgment and righteousness and so forth, he doesn't play favorites. Nobody will receive favoritism. You will either be um, under the blood of Jesus Christ, and if that's the case, then your sins have already been judged and the punishment has already been laid on Christ. Or you will be outside of Christ, and if that's the case, then you will receive a just judgment. Now, Romans chapter 3, verse 19, talks about the fact that no one no one will be able to complain that they've been treated unfairly by God. We are all condemned under the law. And that little phrase in Romans chapter 3, 19, that every mouth might be stopped, okay, that means nobody's going to be able to say, Lord, your judgment was too harsh. Your judgment was unfair. What you're doing is not right. Even the heathen will have to acknowledge the righteousness and the equity of God as God judges every man according to his work. But there's something else here that we're thinking about. Revelation 19. as far as the joyful anticipation of God judging the world in righteousness, which means all things will be set right. In Revelation 19, starting in verse 1, it says, And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments. 
For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. One of these days, part of the praise that we're going to be shouting up to the Lord is praise over the reality that his judgments are true and righteous. That as the Lord comes to judge his enemies, he does it in a way that could only be described as right. And so the psalmist in Psalm 98 is anticipating this day when the, when the Lord will come and He will judge in righteousness. He will judge in equity. And as we circle this back around to thinking about joyful anticipation of receiving the fullness of your salvation, part of the inheritance that you've received is that you've been covered in the blood of the Lamb and you do not stand in fear of the judgment of Christ because He's died for you. He's paid for your sin. And He has an inheritance that's waiting on you. And so again, joyful anticipation. Praising God for what we anticipate. It's that future hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, thank You that we have uh, a living hope. That our hope is in um, Jesus Christ and what He has done on our behalf and then what He has reserved for us in heaven. And so, Father, I pray You would bless us to meditate on these realities. And as we do that, I pray that our hearts would be stirred to joy and to praise as we anticipate receiving the fullness of what we've received in Christ. As we anticipate the, the manifest... Um, uh, reign and rule of King Jesus and as we anticipate His righteous judgments on the world. I pray that these things would be applied to our hearts through the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen.